Hi, my name is Sonia Ballou, and today I'm going to be reading our scripture. It is from the New Testament, the book of John, starting in chapter 20, um, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Madeline came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Sonia. That was, I could, I could listen to her reading voice all day. I have five more pages of notes up here if you want to come and continue. I'll just make gestures next to you. I'll be like, do what she just said. All right. It's lovely. 
It is, it is human nature for us to want something or to be something only to then kind of face the reality of things and settle for the opposite. Uh, how many times have we said before, this is it, I'm going to get a handle on my finances and then before the day is over, you've taken on new debt. Or you're a student, you say, this is the year I'm going to buckle down, I'm going to do better, I'm going to get better grades, and then all new opportunities for fun and freedom and other things come up and you take those advantages instead. Or we're always trying to chase this simple life. I just want less um, chaos in my existence. So we, we, we aim for a life of simplicity, but what we often find is a life of overcommitment. Jesus offers a life that I think many want. There's an attractiveness to, for lack of a better term, what the Bible peddles. There's attractiveness to it. Even those that aren't in Christ say, I understand this whole thing. You claim to have peace. You claim to have joy, all that sort of stuff. That all sounds great. But then so few or so many fail to embrace this life that Jesus offers. We see it all around us. The world is chasing love but they often report loss instead. Or the world says, be courageous and go after what you need. And so they're chasing this life of courage, but then gives into fear of almost everything. Or the world desires faith. We just got to believe more. We got to believe in believing. But then it requires proof before believing in anything. We start to sound like Escaletto from Nacho Libre. I don't believe in God. I just believe in science. For those of you visitors, I do those dumb things once in a while. We have been walking through this journey of the gospel of John and miraculously somehow by the Lord's providence, we find ourselves in John chapter 20 on Easter Sunday, which is the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if the, if the story, what we've been studying ended at chapter 19, some great things would have still been accomplished. If, if there was not more written about an empty tomb and, and his ministry for the next 40 days amongst his friends, even afterwards, if none of that had taken place, there would have been a lot of great accomplishments and there'd be a lot of things that the world would admire about Jesus or revere in him or even seek to emulate. I mean, who can argue with him? He's, he's, he's uh, given us a model of peace instead of aggression, or he's demonstrated humility while so many around us do nothing but, but live in pride. Or to show patience instead of venting in anger like so many of us are tempted to do. Or a life of giving as opposed to taking and sacrifice instead of living selfishly. And of course, the ultimate, he demonstrated love instead of hate. These are all great characteristics and they're things that we admire about Jesus. But just copying or admiring these traits would have lacked the power and sustainability that the world has experienced for over 2,000 years. Just ask those who lived in our study in the Jewish times under Pharisaical oppression what happens when sinful humanity tries to use God's standards, the good things of what God promotes, but then it lacks his empowering of it. It turns into an, a rigorous system of increased laws that seek to control people because put in the hearts of sinful man, that's what it always becomes. No, it's clear from scripture that the resurrection is crucial to an enduring faith. It's the lifeblood in all of the good things that Jesus did, all the things that the world would, would seek to admire him for. It was the resurrection that made it all come together. 
Even Jesus himself said this would be the case in John uh, 2 when the Jewish leaders were, were prompting him for, hey, we need some kind of sign. You're doing all these miracles and stuff. How do we know you're from God? And he said, he said in uh, John chapter 2, he said, um, uh, Jesus answered, said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And of course, they laughed in hysterics. Hey, come on, it's taken 40 years to build this thing. They're standing in a temple courtyard and everything. They're going, you can't just do that overnight. What are you talking about? But the scripture says, of course, he was referring to his own body that would be risen after three days in the grave. And it wasn't even on the disciples' radar. It was something that came to them later after he resurrected that they were like, oh, that's right. He said that. We thought he was talking about the temple. Even the Apostle Paul says how crucial the resurrection is to the faith of Jesus' followers. And 1 Corinthians 15, that great chapter about the resurrection, says if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You see, the resurrection of Christ is the single most important event in human history. Now, John, in his writing, doesn't focus on all the angles that the other gospel writers do about the resurrection. He's He's got a particular view in mind, not because he's contradicting them, but he's only emphasizing certain details. He's not necessarily focusing on the proofs of the resurrection, though many controversies came trying to explain the resurrection away. So we won't spend a lot of time trying to prove um, that it happened. There was an assumption on John's part, because he wrote his gospel much later, that news of the resurrection has gotten out, the details of it have gotten out, so he's going to focus on the characters that witnessed the resurrection, or at least witnessed the empty tomb, and the impact on them, and that's who we're going to focus on this morning. We've already heard from our reading this morning, we're introduced, or reintroduced, I should say, to Mary of Magdala, We have the collective disciples, the ones who are kind of hunkered and huddled away. And then later on, before we get to the end of this chapter, we see the individual disciple who was off on his own named Thomas. And what John's view of the gospel is going to bring into focus for us is the impact of the empty tomb on things that matter to us. You showed up here on April 18th, what's 17th. I just knew it was Sunday. I knew where I needed to be on Sunday morning. You showed up here relating to a lot of the things that we're going to see play out in the characters' lives, things like loss and fear and doubt. So what John has to say about the interaction of these folks with Jesus after he left that tomb empty is going to be vastly important to us as we listen. So let's take a look at from the the lens of Mary Magdalene this morning. To see that joy for life requires a resurrection. This is what we see going on in Mary's heart and in her response to finding an empty tomb. She has suffered a great loss. We know all of Jesus' friends have suffered a great loss. But in particular, it hits Mary a little bit different than it would even the others. 
She can't sleep well, most likely from the night before because Jesus has been has been uh, crucified. And so she's tossing and turning and she's not really settled on. I think the story says that even as the the markets were starting to open after Sabbath, she was like beelining it for the materials and stuff because she's going to go back to the grave to make sure that the burial process with the ointments and the spices and everything was done appropriately. There was no amount of love she wasn't willing to show Jesus even after his death. And so she's anxious about this. She's emotionally invested. She's energetic towards going to the tomb. And so she can't wait. And so she goes in the early watch, which is somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. She was ready to go. And she goes only to find that the stone is rolled away, but that isn't something that even occurred to her. She's running with her her sisters in the Lord, her companions. They're going to the grave and part way it kind of occurs to them. How are we going to get that giant stone out of the way? You see, love doesn't ask how. When, when you love someone or something, you just say, I just know what needs to be done. It's going to get done. And they take off and then expect to find a stone in their way and have to figure out the next step. But that isn't what they find, is it? Instead, she sees that the Lord is not there. So she's emotionally distraught. She runs for help. So she ran in verses uh, two through four. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And this is John always referring to himself. And I, and I want to say that John doesn't do this to brag. He, he doesn't say the one whom Jesus loved so that he looks better than the other people. He's just saying, I just know that I was loved by Jesus. And that's the way I want to refer to myself instead of saying my name. But... There's a clue that maybe John was on his high horse. We see this in verses 3 and 4 where it says, So Peter went out with the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, writes John, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I see what's going on here, John. John's like, hey, if I'm the one scribing this thing down, I'm going to make sure everyone knows that I beat Peter to the tomb. So maybe there's that streak in John that says, I'm the one that Jesus loved. I don't know. I don't think that's really what's going on. But it is curious that he brags about himself and his long distance speed records. Back to Mary. (laughs) The important point. She runs to get Simon and Peter and to get John and say, they've taken him. And we don't know where they've laid him. You see, it would be a really poor setup if they were trying to pull one over on everybody and they forgot where they put the body. Or they didn't bring all the closest friends of Jesus in on the plan. It would be quite ridiculous. Mary is emotionally distraught because not just because a dear friend of hers has passed or a close companion. All of us would be distraught in that situation anyway. There's something really heavy about just a life that was there with you is now no longer there. That's terrible and tragic enough. But for Mary, there was a closeness to Jesus that others probably didn't even experience because of what he did for her. The background we have of Mary is that she had experienced a lot of wickedness. Even at the time that she was freed of her burden, the scripture says that seven demons were cast out of this woman. I don't know what it takes for you to get in a position to allow seven demons to move in. It's probably not a really great place to be. And and the way you're going to behave once they've taken up residence isn't going to be great either. There was a lot of history and a lot of miles on Mary of Magdala. 
The Talmud, the Jewish writings tell us that Magdala itself was was known. It would be kind of like our Las Vegas. It was very prominently known reputationally for a place of prostitution. And so the speculation is made and tradition has kept it that most likely that was Mary's previous occupation. So when she encounters Jesus and he frees her of this oppression, she forgives her of her sins. What she's encountering is finally a man who wasn't looking at her for what he could take from her, except for her burden of shame and guilt and worthlessness. Jesus became everything to her because he gave her life. The forgiveness of her tremendous track record of sin, but also the inclusion in a, in a commonality or in a friendship or in a family going forward. And so we always see her very close to the heels of Jesus, always closer on the fringe of the story of the gospel because she's been changed. And now that change has gone away. Now that that tomb is empty and she doesn't know why it's not occurring to her. Oh, he said this would happen. No, she lost him. And it reveals her great need. You see, her past with all that she had experienced, all that she had grown accustomed to, and in particular in that sea, in that, in that era of human history, the presence of a man would have been extremely important to a woman. And in particular in Mary's life, she had grown accustomed to always needing a man nearby in order to get through life. And now he's gone. And she would need his presence for any hope, for any restoration, for any joy to ever come back into her heart. So when we come to verse 11, we say that we see that she stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she was so distraught that she saw two angels sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one on the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she just answered them. You say, what's weird about that? It seems as though every time an angel show up, people's knees get weak, they hit the deck, and they are undone. Don't kill me. Don't hurt me. There's something magnificently glorious of the appearance of angels that takes even the strongest men and reduces them to a puddle before them. And here's Mary because she's so distraught. She's so emotionally worked up that she just starts dialoguing with them and, and kind of perhaps even in a confrontational way. Like, why, are my, why am I weeping? They, they've taken away my hope. They've taken away the forgiveness that I've been walking in all of these years. They've taken away my comfort and my peace of knowing that, that I really have been relieved of this burden. They've taken away my belonging. She says all that by just saying, in verse 13, they've taken away my Lord. And then Jesus, don't know how he did it. This whole resurrected body thing's really cool. It's kind of, it's mysterious. It's fascinating. He's going to be going where, going through uh, areas where doors are locked. He's still going to be hungry enough to eat fish with them that follow me. All these kinds. It's cool. And I think he's having some fun. She doesn't see him at first. So she's like, they've taken away my Lord. And then Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? But again, she's emotionally distraught. She's not looking at her surroundings. Perhaps he's having fun with the fact she doesn't recognize me. You know, I transfigured my I don't know. She doesn't recognize him. Supposing him to be the gardener, she says to him, she's getting cranked up now. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. And I swear to you, my adrenaline will be able to carry this body where it needs to go. I will take him away myself if you just say where he is. Jesus said to her, Mary. And that's when it all popped. The light goes on, or the candle, I should say. 
And she turns to him and says in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Or perhaps she said it in the Italian, Raboni. To me, it sounds like an Italian dish. It sounds like something you're going to get at the Olive Garden later, but (laughs) Rabbanai. This is an incredible title that she gives to him. It has significant meaning as, as history goes on, but, but important is she, she, the first expression out of her mouth is something that's not just rabbi, not just teacher. No, she's expressing greater honor and a supreme reverence. Everything in her fibers is coming out. Rabbanai. And then other gospels fill in some of the details, but Jesus has to respond to her in her exuberance because we don't see it in writing here, but you picture she goes from saying that to immediately kind of wrapped around the guy's ankles. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, don't cling to me for I've not yet ascended to the father, but, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. He says to her, don't cling to me because I haven't ascended to the father. And many have taken this to be like somehow he couldn't be touched because of all the strange things that have gone on with his resurrected body, with his glorified body. Like, hey, you can't you can't touch me. You know, there's things that haven't completed yet or I'm going to be going and ascending and everything. No, what he's saying to her is you need to chill out a second, Mary. I know you're excited to see me, but we still have work to do. If you cling to me and keep me all to yourself, you're not going to be able to do what I have next for you. I need you to go to my brothers. First time he ever uses that expression with his disciples. And he qualifies why he calls them brothers. And he says, I want you to tell them something very important that in time, not today, but I am going to ascend to my father and your father to my God and your God. What we see in Mary's reaction and even more so in Jesus' reaction to Mary is that you and I need to understand that Jesus will be uniquely present in our greatest time of distress. I don't know your personality makeup. I don't know your history. I don't know your temptations. I don't know all of the things that make you who you are, but there is one who does. And what she needed was she needed a moment to wrap her arms around his ankles and say, you haven't left me. It's all true. Everything you, you told me, everything that you said was true of me in you has been proven. She needed his presence in order to have all of that hope rest in her heart again. All that had been taken away from her in just a moment's discovery of an empty tomb has now come flooding back into her soul. And he needed, uh, he, she needed a mission. Now she has all this appreciation. She has all this excitement. He says, you need to run this off. Go tell your brother, go tell my brothers, your brothers, that there's more to be done. And gladly she takes off. So John then brings us to the vantage point of the disciples to see that courage in life is going to require a resurrection. So in verse 19, it said to us that on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. 
The disciples had this tremendous fear that was going through them from the time that Jesus was being persecuted, arrested, tortured, and then crucified. They were thinking it's only a matter of time before they come after us, too. And to to be wallowing in the in the sadness and the dismay of the fact that he actually lost because we thought we had the real Messiah and now he's dead and gone. Who knows all that they were thinking? But these guys were used to difficulty. They were used to um, uh, things not being easy and going in their way all the time. Most of these guys were tradesmen or fishermen. They were used to the grind. They were used to facing every single day knowing, I wonder what kind of opposition I'm going to have. Even Matthew himself was a tax collector, and while he had somewhat of a cushy life because of the money that he was dealing in, he was dealing with oppression from his brothers and sisters of Israel all the time because they saw him as a traitor, someone who was serving the Romans. These guys were used to oppression. They were used to difficulty. They were used to calluses. Now they're behind a closed door, a bolted and locked door, the scripture says, for fear of the Jews. The crucifixion. And now the missing body of Jesus has broken them. Jesus had done something with them. He had brought them on a journey. He had called these guys from a life of earning and instead into a life of learning how to follow him. They were starting to matter for what they were becoming, not for what they were. They weren't just a paycheck. They weren't just a producer of, of goods or services or anything. Now they were, they were representatives of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And now all of that seems to have been stripped away. Do we go back to our old life? Do we go and learn how to, to, to do what we did before? Do we go back to just going home and being in our same situation? We've seen too much. We've done too much. We've experienced way too much for life to ever be normal again. So now what? And then I would also venture to guess that their failure to defend Jesus or even rescue him from arrest and torture crushed them as well. So Jesus comes and he says, peace be with you. Now I'm, I'm let down by the response. I, I want to see the scriptures say that they did cartwheels and freaked out. And so when I saw the word glad in the text, I was like, that can't be what it means. So I go and look up the original language. What is really going on here? And it was like, yes, yeah, calm happiness. <laughs> that doesn't help me. That's very unsatisfying. I know what these guys are going to become. I know what the resurrection is going to do to fuel their passion and their courage. And they will not be behind a locked door ever again. They will not be hiding for fear of the Jews or anybody. They're going to go boldly into the streets and claim he lives. But they weren't there yet. I, I think that that the reason why they were just glad was because there was some relief for sure that he wasn't fully gone. There's some dismay going that this doesn't happen to people. How is he physically here? How is he able to show us his scars and show us the side and all that sort of stuff? But there's also probably a lot of guilt still. And they're saying, okay, it's glad. We're glad that you're back. It's really awesome that you're here, but we really let this guy down. Some of us denied him. Some of us hid away. Some of us failed to believe that what he said was going to happen. We didn't pay attention like we should have. Could have been all of these things going on. 
And in their great need, in verse 21, Jesus repeats, because the first time he says it, I almost imagine Charlie Brown's teacher. They're looking at scars. They're looking at him. And it's like, you know, I don't even know what just happened. So he says to them again, peace be with you. And when you're that distraught, when you're that dejected, when you're that uh, crushed under the weight of your guilt and fear, for the only one who can let you off the hook, say, hey, we still have peace between us, you know had to have been the most helpful words they have ever heard. Jesus says, but I'm not done with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. These guys needed a mission. They needed a restoration of their souls. They needed their exuberance brought back for sure, but they needed to know they still counted to their friend. And Jesus says, I've got a mission for you. And when he had said this, verse 22, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. He breathes on them a foreshadowing of what was going to happen in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost when the Spirit would come like a mighty rushing wind and blow through the servants of God and they would start speaking in languages that everybody present, even though they didn't speak that guy's original language, they were starting to hear it. And they were starting to hear the gospel clearly in their own tongue, in their ears, and they responded by the thousands and decided to follow Jesus as Lord. And then he says this weird thing to them. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. Or if you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. And very quickly, what we need to understand here is that this isn't a, a, a as, as many religions have taken or some religions have taken it, that this isn't an authority given to us to absolve sins. I can't go to you and say, oh, you seem to mean it. Therefore, I'm going to let you off the hook with your sins. I can say that about your offense to me, but I can't say that in your offense to God. He's the only one, which is made clear in scripture, who can forgive sins. So Jesus isn't saying to the apostles, now you're on equal footing with God. So if you don't want to forgive somebody, you can hang on to it. No big deal. Because I've, I've elevated you to that level. No, what he's saying is, by the authority given to me, you can now boldly proclaim to others that if you humble yourselves before the Lord, if you seek his forgiveness, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He says, you can represent my message. He was commissioning them and us to continue to proclaim that hope. That's why I can stand here in front of you this morning. And say that these things are true because he said that to those guys at that time. I think what we see from the vantage point of what the disciples experienced, what they needed to hear and see from Jesus, is that Jesus is going to be uniquely restorative at your greatest point of uselessness. This is a hard thing for us to wrap our heads around. We come in here with a lot of different um, bags packed from our histories. We remember who we are. We hold ourselves at a certain standard or we say there's no way that a good and holy God would ever find use for me. Or you come into a church like this and you're like, there's no way that these perfect people, <laughs> right? Pretty funny. There's no way that these perfect people would ever accept me because of what I've done, who I am. But is that what Jesus is showing these men? No, he's showing them, I will restore you to use. I will restore you to mission in my kingdom if you give your life to me. There is always more grace to be found for the heart that seeks after it. 
And then he zeroes in on one lonely guy named Thomas. We know him as what? Doubting Thomas, right? And that comes from this passage. And what we see from Thomas's encounter with the, re, with the resurrection is that assurance of life requires this resurrection. Thomas is in great despair. The scripture tells us in verse 24 that uh, while he was one of the 12 called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, they said, hey, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. By the way, you would never catch me saying that. I am way too squeamish. My wife understands. Thomas wasn't with them. He, he's, he's moved on. He's in this great despair. I don't think that historically we have any record of saying that Thomas was some kind of coward. I don't think that he's just going, oh, heat's getting on. I'm getting out of here. I think he wanders off and, and finds isolation because again, he has had this massive letdown. Back when Jesus was talking about going back to the festival to, um, to preach and to, and to proclaim the good news of God and, and, and all the disciples knew that the authorities were looking for him so they could arrest him. Everyone's like, no master, not a good idea. Don't go back there. Don't go and do this. Thomas says, ah, let the guy go and let's go and die with him. I mean, Thomas is not a chicken. He's a pessimist because that's exactly what he thought would happen. But he's brave. He's willing to be there. And somehow he finds himself on the outside of these guys wandered off. And then he, he has that qualifier as they try to say it with all their exuberance. No, it's true. He's real. He's here. I don't know. And unless I can stick my finger into those wounds, I'm not going to believe. I will never believe. These are statements of deep despair. The fatigue of having lost the battle is setting in with Thomas. But we have to camp here for just a second and explain the difference between doubt and unbelief. Thomas earned the nickname doubter, but that isn't what Jesus picks on with Thomas. Jesus understands that doubt is the result of not being omniscient. That's all knowing. Jesus knows that because of the limitation of our humanity, we don't know everything God knows. And so we naturally will not see the end of all things and not believe everything somebody tells us. A long time ago, I gave up on my uh, uh, believing my own eyes when I watch any video online now. We are so good at tricking the senses and making something look real that now I'm just like, everything I watch, I get a little skeptical. I don't know if that really happened. Doubt is a normal limitation of humanity. Even some responded to Jesus uh, with doubt and he and he healed anyway. The, the, the one time he interacted with that man, he says, do you believe? He says, yes, I believe. But help my unbelief. Help, help all the pieces of me that can't quite wrap my head on how you can do this, why you would do this. Is this really available to me? You see, unbelief, what Thomas was expressing is the moral problem that he was really under. This was a problem of his will. He says, unless Jesus meets my scientific need of proof, I will never believe. I I won't even open up my heart to the possibility that something could take place that I can't wrap my brain around. Does that sound at all familiar in 2022? Thomas is claiming he needs proof. 
I don't believe in God. I believe in science. This is Thomas. I I need proof. I need to see it measurable, observable, repeatable. I need to see it all. But really what Thomas needed was a huge dose of humility. Verse 26 says, eight days later, they had to put up with this Eeyore personality for eight days. No, don't believe it. No, seriously, we saw him. No, I'm not believing it. For eight days, they had to listen to this. Eight days later, Jesus' disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. So something's starting to change. He's at least hanging out with them again. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came again. Ta-da! Love it. He came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Says it again. How much restoration do these guys need? Then he said to Thomas, okay, look, I know what your request is. Put your finger here. See my side, all this kind of stuff. Put put out your hand, place it on my side. Then he says this, do not disbelieve, but believe. Literally, Jesus is saying to him, stop becoming faithless, but become a believer. Thomas, this road that you're heading down can only lead to destruction and emptiness. You are becoming faithless because you have suspended your ability to believe in things that you can't explain. And Jesus is saying, you need to stop that train right now before it heads too far down the tracks. You will not be able to turn around if you let it go too far down the road. Instead, he says, but become a believer. Here's your proof. Are you willing to believe now? You see, Jesus isn't rebuking Thomas for his doubt. That's who we are. Jesus knows who he came to save. But he's rebuking Thomas's unbelief. Faith is a conscious decision to believe in something that isn't immediately provable. Or as Hebrews 11 reminds us, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Do you happen to catch that Thomas's name means twin? It says that his name was Thomas, which means twin, which makes me wonder what was the other one named? Sorry, my head does those kinds of things. Like, that doesn't get me to the deep-seated, like, you know, uh, questions of the Bible. I waste my time with those things. But Thomas was called a twin. A twin of who? Well, I'm sure there was a physical twin, or else he wouldn't have got that name. But metaphorically speaking, could he not be our twin as well? For we also often walk in doubt. And we start to say to the Lord, unless you do this, I will not believe. Unless you come through, unless you save her, unless you bring me him, unless you pay this off, unless you do those kinds of things, I won't believe that you're real. In those moments, we instantly become the twin of doubting Thomas, potentially unbelieving Thomas. But instead, Jesus came at Thomas's worst point of need and intervened and gave him what he needed. So then Thomas responds, having seen the scars and everything, he says, my Lord and my God, not my friend and my buddy, not my teacher and my master. No, my Lord and my God. Since I can see these things, now I know that you have authority over everything, including my silly demands for you to prove yourself to me. So Jesus says to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Do you see us in this text this morning? We covered a lot of ground, just about a full chapter here. 
But do you see us in this? Jesus has referred to us several different times. He said, as he just said, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. So when you're feeling like I'm not really contributing a whole lot to this Christian thing, I'm not really keeping up my end of the bargain. God saved me from a lot. I don't feel like I'm really at least remind yourself I'm somewhat in the camp and I'm following him, even though I have no proof that counts for something it does to Jesus. Now, he wants to grow you beyond that. He, he wants you to not just settle at that place. But he says, blessed are those who have not seen all the proof, all the evidence, who haven't had to touch the scars and see the wounds, and if yet have still believed. He also referred to us when he says, go tell my brethren, my brothers and my sisters, go tell those whom, who, who share the same God, who share the same father with me, that I'm back. And that it's done and that it's, and that we've won. He's including us in this. And he's included us in the commission of going and telling and saying what you forgive on earth will be forgiven, uh, in heaven. And he's saying that we can proclaim the message of the gospel together. You and I need an, an encounter with an empty tomb. Like Mary, like the disciples, like Thomas specifically, we need to do business with what the empty tomb represents for us. As sinners, before we know Christ, we're not just sick, we're dead. This is why adding a little religion to our life doesn't really move the needle for us at all. We, when we're sick, when we're dead, we need new life. We need to get up off the table. And salvation isn't just a resuscitation. We weren't just on our last legs. We were flatlined and we were given resurrection. There's probably a lot to why Jesus had the time period he did, but there was certainly a huge part of the fact that we needed to believe he was really dead. Though some have tried to explain he was just knocked out, just unconscious or whatever. Really? For that amount of time with all those things going on? No, salvation that we experience, that we enjoy, isn't just a resuscitation. It is a resurrection to new life. Not to the one that we had and we're just cleaning it up and improving it. We're letting that one go. We are instead receiving an eternal life that doesn't just mean forever because there are always going to be these two paths, those that follow Christ and accept his forgiveness and those who reject it. And those who reject it will still live forever. They will just live in torment, in torture, in punishment. We're not just talking about forever living. We're talking about joyful living. We're talking about full life in God right now. That's what eternal life is. It's something that is given to us all now. And as we saw from these three vignettes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ can turn tears into joy. It can turn fear into courage. And it can, it can turn doubt into faith. And this is what we all need. We all need a resurrection. We all need the grave to be empty so that we can believe that life has been made new for each and every one of us. And for those of you who have not surrendered to that life, it really is as not, and and no one said this was easy. There's a lot to give up, but it is simple as calling out on the name of the Lord for salvation. Lord, I am undone. I'm, I'm everything that was laying in that tomb covered in sin, unable to save myself. I am that person in that tomb and I can't wake myself up. I can't give myself new life. My life will only be made new if I surrender to you and you breathe that life into me. You don't have to say all of those things. 
There's no right words or wrong words. There's just surrender and crying out to him. And the scripture says that as he hears the cries of the sinner, that he will come and forgive them and give them life. And it's our prayer that you do that this morning. I'm going to ask you if you'd stand. We're going to pray and thank the Lord for these things. And also ask the Lord to move in the hearts and the minds of those that are here today in an incredible and in a profound way. Lord, we are here to celebrate. We are here to remind ourselves that life has been made available to each and every one of us. And many in this room, Lord, I know have received that life. Many have, in this room have bowed their knee before you and asked you to save them from their sins. Many of you have experienced that. Uh, many of them have experienced that new life and have, have experienced that change and the impact that an empty tomb can have on all their future decisions and all their future interactions and all their future relationships and things. And, and none of this means, Lord, that this life gets better for us on this earth, but that the one that is to come is prepared for us. And so, Lord, I just pray that as we, as most of us sit here in worship and in celebration, I pray, Lord, that there would be some who would say, but I haven't crossed that line yet. I haven't experienced that new life. I haven't received it. I pray, Lord, that in the quietness of their place where they stand, that they would simply pray to you, Lord God, I am a sinner guilty of violating your perfection. And I ask you, Lord, to forgive me of that sin, to help me to understand that you have something better for me. I I turn away from it. I walk away from it, wanting to be somebody new. But I can only do it through you. Lord, come into my heart and save me. Forgive me. Restore me to you. And I will be forever praising and celebrating your name. Lord God, if there were any that have prayed that prayer this morning, Lord, I pray that you would move into their hearts, that you would encourage them and lead them as Lord. I pray, Lord, that they would find a new life in you through complete surrender and humility. And I pray that this church would continue to be an instrument for your glory to lead folks into their walk with you. May we be available to come alongside every person who is finding you new. May we be the reason why Waterville changes for the glory of God. Thank you again for bringing these people here. Thank you for your word, for the music that we get to lift up before you. I pray you be pleased with our voices. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.